This is episode number 87 with Scott Barry Kaufman. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. What is up, everyone? Thanks so much for tuning in today on the School of Greatness podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Howes, and I'm thrilled you're joining me today. And I've got Mr. Scott Barry Coppin on, who is the author of a book called Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined, The Truth About Talent, Practice, Creativity, and the Many Paths to Greatness. And just that title alone made me intrigued to learn about what the many paths to greatness are, since this is the School of Greatness podcast, right? So Scott is an interesting guy, and he regularly gives keynotes and workshops on the development of intelligence, creativity, and human potential. He's also the scientific director of the Imagination Institute in the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He also got his doctorate in cognitive psychology from Yale University in 2009 and uh, got his master's degree in experimental psychology from Cambridge University in 2005. So he's, he's a very accomplished individual, done a lot of research on the many paths to greatness. So I'm very pumped to dive into this. And he talks about some of the the challenges that we face or some students face growing up, some children face growing up in school and how they're labeled with a certain uh, dyslexia or, or ADHD or autism, how these students are labeled based on their IQ in school. And he talks about how broken he feels like this is and actually how some of these students who are labeled with learning disorders uh, are actually some of the most incredible entrepreneurs and uh, most successful athletes and artists and designers and all these other things out there because they use their imagination and their creativity in such ways that uh, the classroom kind of stifles and, and, and brings down in certain ways. So I really uh, connected with Scott and with this message and with the book and what he talks about just because I had such a big learning disability growing up and I'll uh, mention that here in just a second, but uh, I'm very excited to bring him on. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this episode with Scott Barry Kaufman. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We got a, a new guest on today. His name is Scott Barry Kaufman. What's up, Scott? Hey, how's it going? Going well, man. And I'm glad we finally got to connect. It's been a few months. I actually found out about you, I think, a couple years ago. I think you were writing uh, something about greatness or something. And I was like, ooh, I want to learn about, more about this guy. So we finally connected. We just realized we have like a thousand mutual friends. And um, so I'm glad you're on the show and here to provide your wisdom to the world. 
So thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, the topic I want to talk about today is greatness, obviously. It's what I talk about a lot. But you've got a book that was um, very interesting to me when I read the cover. And it says, Ungifted, Intelligence Redefined, The Truth About Talent, Practice, Creativity, and the Many Paths to Greatness. And you are a, uh, a psychology professor, but also just a researcher. And you, you study a lot uh, more than I've ever studied in my life. And you research a lot. So you've got like these this data that backs up what I try to just talk about uh, from my own experience and from other people's experience. But you've got like real research, real data that backs up everything that we're about to cover here, which I find fascinating. So I'm excited to dive into what you've learned over the years. Yeah, me too. And a lot of this stuff has also been informed by, by my personal experiences and lots of things that I went through have definitely influenced uh, the, the research that I do. Now, why did you want to research this topic in the first place? Oh, man. You know, I've, I've always been obsessed with questions like what, <laughs> what, what does it take to get to the highest levels of achievement? What are, why do people differ from each other? What to, you know, I remember like being really young and always wondering like, uh, so I was in, I was not in the gifted classrooms. Um, I had an a auditory learning disability when I was really young. And I remember always wondering, what do the gifted kids have that I don't? And, right. um, and I think I used to do like, um, just, I was just, I was like, I really want to be able to study this someday. You know, I want to know what, what is it to these, these people that, that reach highest levels of greatness? Like, what is it? What are the ingredients? And I feel like I've learned so much through my own personal experiments and, and uh, as well as experiments on others. Yeah, I, I read that about you in your in your cover of the book, where you're talking about talking about that, and we have that similarity. I was I was always in the special needs class. I remember I went to when I was in elementary school. I was always in like the extra study hall class with like four other kids, and you know, I was like the only average kid. Everyone else was in a wheelchair, right? Or it was like wow. some, it was like something like that. I was always like the kid who just couldn't learn anything, and then. I went to a private boarding school when I was in eighth grade, and I remember they tested uh, they tested all of these different things uh, when I was there, and I had a second grade reading level when I went to eighth grade. I remember this. I couldn't really read ever, and it was I, I've all I still have challenges spelling. The one class that I actually focused on in high school was typing. I remember I was like, I think this computer thing is going to be like important one day, and I was only typing with two fingers at the time, so I was like committed to doing every class, like learning it, how to type properly. And now I can type probably like 90 words a minute. So that's the thing. That's the thing is that people compensate so much through setbacks and um, especially being told like, or having low expectations. Not not all people rise to that occasion. A lot of people can really cause them to uh, to go further and further behind. But there's some people where that kind of stuff definitely fuels them to kind of want to prove other people wrong and they end up. Yeah. 50 steps ahead. Dude, it was the it was the worst. School was the worst for me. I remember so I had a second grade reading level so they put me in like these advanced or these reading classes to kind of catch me up and these spelling classes. Like I could I still have trouble spelling today and I the simplest words I spell like letters backwards for some reason. And one of my friends was like he he thinks I'm dyslexic and I don't even know if that's true or not but uh, you know I wouldn't be surprised. Just say, just say just like conceptualize that as creativity. Right, right. So there's no, there's no need for a label at your age. There you go. There you go. So I and it's uh, it's interesting because in, in private school, I went to this private boarding school, and 
I don't know if they do this in public schools or not, but when I, when I went in high school to this private school, you, the grade card after every semester, they would, they would rank us how, where we stood in the class based on our GPA. And I was always in the bottom five. So we had, we only had like a couple hundred students in my, my grade, but it was, I was always in the bottom five and I always saw that number. And a couple of times I was like second to last. And it was just the worst feeling knowing that no matter how much I studied, no matter how many advanced classes or tutors I had, like I couldn't comprehend the information. It was so challenging for me to read and remember what I just read a paragraph before and like tie it into the next story. And it was always been a challenge for me. So this is really interesting to like dive into this information to realize that like, Hey, I'm not an idiot. I'm not stupid. I wasn't stupid growing up. I just learned differently and I had other talents. And that's what I want to talk about here. Which, so I'm really excited that you wrote this book. Yeah. Let's talk about this. And, um, what is the, you know, so I'm excited to, to hear about why you're inspired to write about it, but what is the key to understanding the development of greatness? That's something. Oh, well, I'm not sure that, that asking that what is the key is, is the best, uh, the best way to develop greatness. I think the best way is to recognize there are multiple paths to greatness. Mm. And that's kind of one of the big, uh, points I wanted to make in that book is that every person kind of needs to find out for themselves what their unique value is in this world and what, what unique package of personal characteristics, including their motivations, their their um, their their cognitive abilities, like are the, are you a very verbal person? Are you not? Are you a visual spatial person? Like, um, and figuring out um, what kind of environments and niches would be best for you. But what I what I've discovered in looking at people who really reach those highest levels is they didn't necessarily have all those stereotypical markers that we use to predict potential when you're young. In, this includes, you know, people. I studied. I wrote this article recently about what predicts MBA su- success, for instance. And people would be surprised to know that, like, so many of the things that talent scouts go through and do are just not predicting um, greatness whatsoever within hmm. um, within those sports domains. Um, that we looked at this. Uh, the researchers looked at this. You know, you know, the NBA combined. You know how they do this. Uh, they have all these prospective NBA players, like. Um, show test for their agility, test for their height, you know, their general combine, athletic, yeah, yeah. yeah, the combine. So it finds out that's completely non-predictive, right? Of 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 them, it's 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 like a really worthless thing. It shows their athleticism, but it doesn't show their teamwork, their leadership, their emotional intelligence, their ability to bounce yeah. back, all those things, right? Exactly, mental toughness, all the things that really are um, the most important things for differentiating those at the very top versus. Um, those that aren't. Yeah, that's right. 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 Well, you know, everyone talks about, at least when I was growing up uh, in school, everyone was talking about IQ. And can you talk about what is IQ, just so people that don't know, what does it stand for? What's its purpose? And is it even effective? Because it kind of sounds a little bit about what you just talked about. Yeah. So if we could fast forward like 50, uh, 10 years from now and have this conversation, I would say IQ stands for imagination quotient, because that's what I'm working towards in my own. Nice. Yeah, that's like what the Imagination Institute is trying to do is come up with a, a whole new test. But we live right now, 2014, the IQ, everyone uh, knows intelligence quotient. It's supposed to be this measure of your general cognitive ability. Think of it just like you go 
and you do the physical fitness tests, you know, you have to like run with the eraser back and forth or you have to do with a chin press up or, they, or run 500 meters, et cetera, et cetera. And you can take an average of all those physical fitness tests that most of us had to take in high school. Mm-hmm. And I bet, I bet you kicked ass on that, right? I do pretty well. <laughs> yeah, you did through that, that one. <laughs> yes, the physical fitness. And you can get like a rough idea of someone's general physical fitness. Right. By the way, I went to high school with Kobe Bryant. And I did better with him, better than him on the um, the eraser one. I got the like the the all I won the like thing for this. So that's like my one thing. Like. <laughs> one thing, yeah. <laughs> no, nice. within that sports domain, <laughs> <laughs> he kicks my ass and everything else. Um, that's but anyway, yeah. So you get like his general rough index, of, and so same kind of logic is used with IQ tests. Is that we make people like maybe like what's your vocabulary? What's your you know mentally rotate objects in your mind? Um, put these blocks together or what's, you know, what's pattern comes next. And then you just take the average and that's supposed to index your general intellectual functioning. But as you know, with, with general physical fitness as well, is that some of the greatest athletes have a lot of, they've developed very, very specific adaptations to that specific sport that make them stand out. It's not the general fitness that necessarily matters the most, but um, that specific skill set and expertise that you've mastered. Sure. So do you think it's effective then or is it pretty much worthless? I don't. So I'm not anti. I'm not like trying to say they're worthless. Right. But I think the way that they are used in the school system yeah. um, to, to hinder opportunity, we are effectively um, letting way too many students fall between the cracks. Mm. You know, for instance, then I can give you so many examples. So you look at learning disabilities, kids with dyslexia, um, uh, uh schizophrenia, behavioral disorders, et cetera. There's so many multitude of reasons that could cause someone to do poorly in a little testing session with like a psychologist. We have to focus and a psychologist saying, what's the one correct answer? You know, and all these conditions that are so anxiety provoking. Um, there are so many reasons why you could score low in this kind of environment. And then the, the school concludes, oh, well, this student is not doing well in school because of their low intelligence. What I've been trying to challenge, I'm not trying to say that those tests are useless or they're not important information, but I'm actually trying to, I, w- I would really like to change, like, what is the first thing that we think of when a school, when a student is low achieving? And it's not, let's pull out the IQ better and see if they're stupid, if that explains it. Right. Instead, I want to look at so many other factors first, like engagement, uh, effort, um, environmental support, uh, family background. Like, what are the students' priorities? And you know, like, is the student live in an environment where everyone's getting killed all around them? You know, like, that seems surviving seems to be more important than doing well on an IQ test. Right. You know, for that person, there's just so many like just people. I think educators, um, lots of them, just have such a misguided view of how how we realize potential and um, and and what those tests actually are measuring. Right. Okay. And I, I don't know if this cues into my next question, but. On page 61, 62, you talk about the neurodiversity movement. Um, can you talk about what, what that is? Yeah, absolutely. So people, you know, with all sorts of um, uh, different ways of thinking, um, and I, I include people like dyslexia in that, and people, um, so we can just take dyslexia as one example, or autism, right? Autism is another one. People who whose, whose brains are, are wired in a way that, causes them to maybe have some difficulties in one thing, but it often there's usually hidden gifts to that. Mm-hmm. So what, what we know in the, in the dyslexia literature is a lot of entrepreneurs, especially those who create their own businesses, mm-hmm. um, have a hot overrepresentation of dyslexia. They've, they've learned to compensate maybe for their, um, their difficulties in, in the written word with, you know, with, 
with, with personal skills, with, um, with doing, with action. And they also, people with dyslexia tend to have advantages when it comes to uh, mentally visualizing things. Mm. You know? And you can see how that would be really important for sports as well, right? Like you have to, have to like mentally visualize the next um, steps you're going to go through, mental rehearsal it's called. Mm. Um, so there's lots of benefits in that. Sir. So and you, look at, you, go, you go through like all these kinds of things that have been traditionally labeled as you know, learning disabilities or mental illness. You go to autism. Um, you see people lots of them are overrepresented in lots of technical. Um, they, they have very good attention to detail. They tend they're very good at pattern fi- mm. spotting patterns and things. And so, what this neurodiversity movement is all about is that a lot of these people who have been labeled in a very negative way, like you know, they're that you have autism, and it's like framed in this kind of negative aspect. Um, it, it, they're just like fed up with um, with being treated as though that's the totality of who they are and yeah. what they can do in life. And they're and and actually, um, there's a lot of research suggesting that if you look at this person in different contexts, and that's something that really interests me is like, mm. what are we capable of doing? Like, there's some contexts when I where I look totally stupid, and <laughs> right. um, and. Um, like no social skills. Like you stick me in like a really loud thumping like dance club or whatever and I'm like really not that smooth. But, you know, like if I'm in my element, if I'm in a conference academic conference, you know, or something like that where like I feel comfortable around people, then I then then my more natural social skills come out. Mm-hmm. And and that's just an example. But people um, you know, context really matters. Right, right. You know what you're just saying really speaks loudly to me about being able to mentally visualize in sports. That's that's kind of what I felt like I was able to do all the time is see what was going to happen, see what I wanted to create, uh, visualize the whole game in my head before the game started, and really see the outcome. And then also having a you know a creative mind and as an entrepreneur, I feel like I was so frustrated growing up, and I don't know if anyone else listening felt frustrated in school. And has seen it as an opportunity for something else, whether it be in business or you know social skills. I really had to develop being able to connect with people because I didn't feel like my intelligence was strong enough to actually you know get anything done through books or through you know book smart things. So for me, it was all about connecting with people, being engaging, having a big heart, opening myself, listening, and creating that type of connection with people as opposed to you know, sitting down and writing, writing papers or doing research or something like that. Cause I was not, I just couldn't focus. I couldn't even like comprehend it. Well, that's actually a really good example of the whole focusing thing. So ADHD is another big one that, um, people have fundamental misunderstanding about ADHD and, and why context matters. So a lot of students, uh, very, they're actually very creative students and they just want to do a project or they want to express themselves mm. but instead they get the label ADHD because they have trouble concentrating in the classroom but research shows that students with with these attentional deficits quote, I'm putting like quotes in the air right now quote attention deficits sure. in the classroom if you get them mm. absorbed in something that's personally meaningful to them they actually are better at concentrating than everyone else on this planet yeah. So, so there's another case where like if you look at someone in one narrow context, you can conclude that person sure. can't concentrate or shit. And then you put them in a in a situation where they are in the flow state, um, which is something I study a lot in the field of positive mm-hmm. psychology. And suddenly they have a better ability to enter flow. Yeah, than others. So, I mean, yeah. Just to give go back to my example, like you know, I couldn't wait till practice started at three thirty every day after school was done. Like I just couldn't wait 
because I knew then I'd be able to focus all my energy and attention. And I was in the flow and in the zone. And like, I could, I was listening to the coaches. I was taking the feedback. I was applying what I learned like instantaneously. And I bet if there was a great student who wasn't as great as an athlete, if you put them in the context of a sports practice, maybe they wouldn't be able to focus. Maybe they'd be, have ADHD in that context. That's right. So it's, it's interesting that we judge and put this criteria based on just the classroom and then make them, you know, seem like a bad uh, child if they can't focus in the classroom or a bad student. When really they could be a great student in a different context, like music yeah. or sports or language or something, you know? That's exactly right. That's so cool. I, I like that. Everything you're saying is speaking clearly, loud and clearly to me right now. So, Range Rover Sport leads by example. Picture this. Assertive on-road performance meets commanding all-terrain capability. That's the third-generation Range Rover Sport, which is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet. This vehicle redefines sporting luxury, offering an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and effortless composure. Now available in sleek, new stealth pack, Carpathian gray exterior wrapped in satin protective film with black accents and black brake calipers. Inside the Range Rover Sport, advanced cabin technologies like active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offer new levels of comfort and refinement. And let's not forget about the award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment system. Enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Wow, that's like a spa day while on the go. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host at capella university you'll get support from people who care about your success from before you enroll to after you graduate pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it imagine your future differently at capella.edu um. You talk about studies that show intrinsic motivation uh, and, and how it decreases steadily starting from about third grade. And you talk about this on page 98 on the book. And again, this book is heavily, uh, re there's a lot of research in this book. So uh, you might want to do some skimming and checking out the, uh, the, the intro first and kind of checking th through chapter by chapter, then reading it all out at one sitting. Just for me, it was a challenge, but it was lots of great information. No, throughout. that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, you know, I had to get that, there's, you know, I had to get that, that book out of my system and I had sure. to get all the research out there, but I'm actually really excited about uh, the new book I'm working on, which is coming out at the end of next year, which is written with a journalist, uh, Carolyn Gregoire of the Huffington Post, and it's going to be about creativity, but it's going to be written very much more for a, a general audience. I like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I like it. So, but you talked about on page 90, 98. Intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic, right? intrinsic motivation yeah. decreases steadily after third grade. So can you explain what is intrinsic motivation and why this happens um, and how to stop the decrease? Well, I wish I knew 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> we need to like change the whole educational system, basically, if we want right. to stop that. But the thing that's interesting to me is when you look at little kids, they come in. We come into this world naturally motivated with, to understand the world around us for curiosity. We are wired to assimilate knowledge about mm. this world, and we really actually want to. It's not something that we have to be told to do. But it's funny, the second we start enforcing that it's a requirement, we lose interest mm. in, do, in doing that. Uh, we, we, we kind of have it like backwards in terms of what um, we, just how much control we really need to have over students in order to, um, to have them have intrinsic joy in the learning process. And you do see the steady decline after third grade in that intrinsic sort of, I would love to learn for the sake of learning. Um, intrinsic motivation, and you see this increase in extrinsic motivation, and um, I'm doing this for for uh, rewards. You know, then that's that's when that's when time in our life when parents are telling us, you know, you do well in school, honey. I'll give you like a lollipop or whatever. And you're like, oh, I really want that lollipop, <laughs> right, right. you know, whatever. <laughs> and so it's a really shift shifts. But it's funny because like parents and teachers, as well meaning as they are, they really are getting in the way. Of um, of that intrinsic joy learning process, it gets it, it's it, it it gets worse and worse. It steadily gets worse. By the time we graduate high school in twelfth grade, like virtually every student is like, I hate learning. Right? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. College. Um, I remember college. Like the only reason I went to college was to be able to play sports, and I could not wait to be done. It's not like <laughs> I ever studied. Which sports did you play in college? I played a lot: football, basketball, oh, right. and track. Yeah, and it was like you know I wanted to be interested in learning, but it was like, there was nothing that I was interested in college and learning. There was maybe one or two classes on leadership or sports psychology that I was like, okay, this is cool. And now it's like, I can't wait to learn more and more now that I'm out of the school setting. It's like, yeah, I want to learn this. I'm reading these books. That's why I'm doing the podcast to interview people. Cause I'm like, I want to learn from everyone else who's way smarter than me and take it all in, but it's in a different context and a different setting. Absolutely. You've, you've returned to age five in a good way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's interesting. Okay. Um, so we lose the excitement of life basically because we're forced to. <laughs> I don't know about life. That's too bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we learn the will to live. We learn the will to live after five. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we lose the excitement of learning yeah, uh, because we're forced to is what you're saying. It's because we're putting this structure yeah, that doesn't allow for really creative learning. Totally. And there's more to the story. Um, in, in that same chapter, I talk – actually, that chapter is called Passion. And intrinsic motivation is different than passion. So what I talk about later in that chapter is how um, if we – the difference – so the difference between just being like motivated intrinsically like, oh, I really am motivated to learn that and I love to learn that is that you've integrated it into your identity. It's not just like I – uh, um, play basketball. It's like I am a basketball player, and right. everything you do, like once once you make that commitment of I am a basketball player, like everything you do in life feeds into that. Every the learning is not right. like an effort. Anything that seems relevant at all to that, you immediately assimilate. Yes, and um, and it doesn't it, through this flow process, not necessarily effort. And so that's what that's what harmonious passion is. Harmonious. Well, that's what passion is: is integrating in, into your identity. But then you can integrate this activity in your identity in a health, healthy, helpful way, or um, a very obsessive way. So obsessive passion is when you've you've just you you ha you have to do it at um, all costs. And if and you've tied your entire ego up into this one activity so much, and you just constantly persevere. But that can lead to burnout and low well being, sure. low well being. 
people who are harmoniously passionate, it's called harmoniously passionate about their activity. Uh, they feel actually feel good about themselves when they're engaging. It's 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 a core part of their identity, but they feel as though their their self is becoming more complex. Like they're they're growing and learning at every and other sides of them. It's like it, it reaches out to other sides of their self, making them a more authentic, complex human being. And that, in a lot of ways, is the greatest feeling um, any of us could ever have on this planet. In addition to maybe uh, positive relationships with others. Right. Right. You mention studies that show that inspiration is not just an elusive and divine gift. Can you explain this idea that inspiration can be captured and manipulated? Sure. Yeah, so there, there are researchers who have started to take this very elusive idea of inspiration. You know, the Greek, Greek thought that, like, you, you, breathe, you breathe the muses into it, us, right? And it was a very, like, um, very divine sort of connotation, inspiration. But you, what you can do is you can take people and, um, and, and have them go about their day and you can have people like page people every now and then and, and, and measure how inspired they are in that moment when you've randomly um, beeped them with, on their pager or whatever or on their iPhone. And then you can have them take various tests to see um, what, what caused that inspiration. And so they, and in a lot of ways, it's like looking at before and after pictures, you know, what, what do people look like before they're inspired and what do they look like after they're inspired by something? And through all of this research, they found that inspiration has some very specific characteristics. Like inspired people all seem to, um, there's some very some strong commonalities. So one is, is inspiration to be spontaneous. It's something that you, you encounter a certain stimuli or something in the world and, and you're like, boom, that's, that's it. I see new possibilities for my future. I see I have a vision for my future that I didn't have before. I'm, I'm going beyond myself. You also um, have this approach motivation where you suddenly, um, your, your body and mind, everything goes, wants to go towards that vision in your head at, at all costs, whatever the obstacles. Yep. Um, and, um, and it's sort of this like trans just transcendence aspect where you, you've definitely uh, – a lot of the self-serving concerns you used to have um, don't matter as much anymore and, and things take on new meaning. Um, and the things that are the best predictive of inspiration are things like open to experience, like being open-minded mm -hmm. to your environment, your experiences and, and, all, and engaging yourself in lots of different um, things and, that, and challenges that you wouldn't normally put yourself in those situations. Um, and and inspiration changes your not just those things I was talking about, but also it increases your flow in an activity, yeah. and uh, lots of, lots of good lots of good things. When I become convinced, you know, you know the the um, the Edison thing, like um, what is it? Greatness is like ninety nine percent perspiration, one percent inspiration. Right. It's actually bullshit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like like we like we've done the studies, okay, right. and and it's wrong. Um, actually. Uh, inspiration is far, for, far, far a greater predictor of creativity. Um, patent inventions, they looked at inventors and patents and everything. It's far, far greater predictor than effort. Right. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Let's say it one more time. Oh, yes. Inspiration is a better predictor than, than effort hmm. um, when it comes to the creativity. Effort and inspiration predict different things. So effort predicts like technical merit and mm. you know, getting completion, getting things done. 
But inspiration is a far, far better predictor of actual like creative ideas and genius level ideas and um, and moving things forward for a field. And um, yeah, so it really that 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 is a crucial under um, studied uh, underappreciated variable, I think. Mm, interesting, interesting. Yeah. You have this page uh, on page. What is this? Two ninety five, where you talk about. We're moving right along. We are moving along, man. Yeah. <laughs> you got this definition of some intelligence and, uh, talking as we're talking about intelligence a little bit, um, all these different people who've, who have given their definition of intelligence, this cool illustration that I, I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, some of the great minds that we've, you know, had in the world. And I was just curious, what's your definition of intelligence? Oh boy. <laughs> well, you know, this is something that, Part of my dream, one of my dreams was to redefine intelligence. Ever since I was a little kid, I was like, we really need a more expansive definition. If you look at the way intelligence has been defined over the past hundred years by various researchers, something that seems to lie at the core of it is adaptation to your environment. Mm. Like, can you adapt to the environment? Yes. The thing that the thing though is, how do we measure it? Well, IQ mm. tests. Well, how is IQ tests really measuring your it's a, your adaptation to a very specific narrow environment, like abstract puzzles and things like that? But it's not uh, not really measuring your ability to actually um, adapt and and change. And and I think strategies, your ability to devise stra alternative routes to getting to the same path, I think that counts as intelligence. Um, but I also think we need to take into account, in addition to ability, we need to take into account personal goals, like looking at the context of what what is that person's Goals like if someone does not care about doing well in a physics physics class, and they are failing physics class, and we call them stupid just based on that information alone. Mm. I don't think we're getting a good assessment of their intelligence at all. Um, and also um, engagement, the engagement process I felt was lacking from any current theory of intelligence. So I, you, you love how I didn't actually tell you exactly <laughs> what intelligence is. Um, I'm sort of saying like these are the characteristics that it takes. Sure. I, I defined it in the book as um, the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals, and I called it my theory of personal intelligence. Oh, I like that. And, oh, really? Awesome. I, I do like that, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, Lewis House likes my theory. <laughs> That's interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at it. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I just felt like from a practical point of view. Mm. Intelligence no. really should be a personal thing. So say it one more time your definition. Yeah, the dynamic interplay of ability and engagement in the pursuit of personal goals. Oh. So ability and engagement, as far as I'm concerned, are never inseparable. You know, um, our our ability and our our skills. You can look at it as our skills grows depending on how engaged we are in what we're doing, and how much effort we put in, and how much time and care we take to develop those skills. So they're inseparable. So that's why I say dynamic interplay. They're always working together and they're always changing each other. They're mutually reinforcing. Mm. And then it, in the pursuit of personal goals. So if you really want to see what someone is capable of intellectually and creatively, I'm saying at the very least, give them a long period of time to engage in something that's personally meaningful to them and develop and master those skills. Mm, like if you that. don't do that, I would say don't even start trying to measure their intelligence. Yeah, because you give them something that they don't care about, it's going to be hard to measure. Absolutely. They're not, putting their, they're not putting their full energy, their full effort, their full flow state into that understanding and learning and, and skill set. Therefore, you're not going to get their best performance. So that you say that as though like, yeah, duh. And the thing is, you get it, but you'd be shocked 
at the current education system we have, the public policies that are in place, everything is designed to um, do basically um, the opposite, to, to, uh, to, to lower student engagement, to prejudge ultimate potential without giving people the resources or the opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. I can go down the list. It's like a laundry list of the opposite of things we should do to actually get the best in- intellect and creativity out of people. Yeah, it's a challenge though. You know, I don't know if there's any perfect system or any perfect system right. that we could create because obviously there's got to be some type of structure in learning for kids growing up. You don't believe in anarchy? Yeah, I mean – there's there's got to be a better way, or there's got to be a way we can prove this. Obviously, and uh, hopefully, whoever figures this out, you know, I'm going to be sending my kids to that type of school uh, cool. or that type of learning. But you know, even even the new way, there's not going to be a perfect structure. Some kids are going to be struggling somewhere, some way. I'm assuming. So that's the challenge: is like, how do we figure out a solution that works for everyone? That's a win-win for everyone. Totally. I, I actually do work with an educational reform movement. That I think has is going in the right direction. Um, what are they doing? Yeah, so they're called the Future Project, and what they've done is they've hired a full-time position in the school called the Dream Director. Mm. It's like not your guidance counselor who will say, be realistic if you have a dream, but the Dream Director is <laughs> someone you, <laughs> you go to and you're like, I would like to cure cancer. I would like to be in the NBA. Whatever, whatever the goal is, no matter how high in the sky or how small. And the purpose of the Dream Director is to help them take whatever steps necessary to start getting culture of that goal. So they pair them up with a mentor from the community. Wow. They um, work on a significant project. They meet once a week. Um, this can start freshman year and go all the way through up to you know graduation. And the thing that I've that I've noticed about a lot of these kids, they come with like low self-esteem and like maybe they're failing their classes and things. And the thing is like you don't they don't have to like cure cancer in, in high school. <laughs> like that's okay. Like you don't have to accomplish that dream. And right. the point is you believe in that child that you believe in that person that um, that dream is worth taking seriously. You just take the dream seriously and you help teach them the skill set of what it takes to really enact goals. These are the skill sets that I this is the kind of education I envision is one where we equip people to learn how to fish, right? You know that old expression. Yeah. You know? I like that. I really like that approach. And because you know the student is going to figure out whether the, the dream is actually possible or if they can see it as a possibility at some point in their life along the journey. If they have a mentor in fifth grade who's an NBA player and you're playing basketball and you're having this passion for it, that's what you really want to do. You know, once you get to high school, you start playing more, you're going to see like, okay, can I compete? Am I the best or am I horrible? And is it something I'm still passionate about every day, even when I suck? So you're, you're, the student, I would think, would be able to be self uh you know, well, I don't even know what the word is, but self-determination, I guess. Yeah. They'd be able to figure out for themselves if, if yes, I want to continue this or if no, I'm going to go on a new path. And at least I've learned the skills of what it needs to do to achieve my, my dream and my goals by taking this process on this one dream. So I think that's, that's a really cool process. I mean, that's what I teach all of my um, students is like, if you want to achieve something, if you want to be great at anything, you've got to have a mentor who's the best at it already or one of the best that you can learn from and pick up those skills that no one else can teach you uh, by yourself or, or by yourself. So that's definitely yeah. a cool, and that's called the Future Project. Yeah, it's called the Future Project. The is there, future project. Is yeah, there a the website future, or absolutely? Yeah, the Future Project.org. Nice. So but the, th- 
and there's lots of videos and stories about about these huge transformations. You know, you really hit the nail on the head. You're like, let the students figure out for themselves that's something they want to do. I mean, the whole point is we shouldn't be prejudging potential, especially before age 18. Right. You know, we should we should. That's the thing that just we just shouldn't be in the business of doing that. Yet education is in the business of doing that yeah. with with college applications. You know, and Gosh, it's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. it's so crazy. Yeah. Um, Man, it's like, yeah, I could talk about that for a while. Um, I love the sentence in page 247 that you have. It says, we are all capable of extraordinary performance. The key is finding the mode of expression that allows you to create your own symphony. And I just thought that was such an, a great way of saying it, that we're all capable of extraordinary performance. The key is finding our own mode of expression that allows us to create our own symphony. So... Yeah. And this is tying it all in to kind of what you've been talking about, which is not forcing it, doing something that you don't like or the mode of expression that doesn't work for you, but finding something that you're so driven and passionate about and you're capable of, you know, getting into the flow. The only way to straight create extraordinary performance in my mind is to step out of your, your mind, step out of your ego, step out of your image conversations, your survival, um, uh, strategies and step into flow, which is obviously what you've been studying for a while as well. And I don't know if you would piggyback that or not, but I think that the only way to create any extraordinary performance is to be in flow. Absolutely. You know, I, my money's on flow over, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of people talk about deliberate practice, you know, yeah. um, and uh, the book, you know, is that talent, is, talent is overrated. Does he talk about that? Yep. And Dow liars, you know, Matthew yep. Gladwell's yep. liars. And, um, Calendars Erickson has done um, a whole spent his whole career studying deliberate practice, which is um, very sort of deliberate mode of practice where you're learning from your mistakes, getting feedback from mentors, and pushing yourself in a very intentional, deliberate way. But the interesting thing is that that my my colleagues have have done like a summary of um, across various different sports or various different domains, like in business and sports and music. And education, and they found that deliberate practice actually explains a much smaller amount of the differences in ultimate performance than than people tend to think. Uh, people would be shocked by just how more important other forms of practice, like like flow and um, uh, and play. You know, I think play gets right. a bad rap. You know, and and, and I, I'm going to Lego in a couple of weeks in Denmark, and I'm going to be giving a talk on the importance of play and child development and mm -hmm. creativity. And it's just hugely, I think it's just as important as deliberate practice. Yeah. You know? Well, I think play and flow go together. I don't think you can. Oh, they do. You, they can't, do. you can't be in flow unless you're letting go of the conversation of the end result. I think when we think about what are people how are people judging me in my performance? How are, how are people thinking about me? What am I saying? What am I doing? How do I look? We're not, we're not playing. And then we're not in flow. But when we're just out of our minds and in, right. in and out of our bodies, you know, um, where we're feeling everything and then we're letting go of the minds and what we're thinking and we're playing, we're just having fun and we're not worried about what it looks like or who's watching or what they're thinking that's when we step in the flow in such a powerful, moving, and it's the most inspiring thing when you see it in other people. You're like, wow, that person is having fun. They don't care. They're just like outrageously expressive and 
out of their body, right? It's such a cool experience to witness and to do yourself when you're in it. Absolutely. You know, there's some fields where you, you, you can wear the flow more on your sleeve than others, like dance. Mm, sure. <laughs> you know, we're like, wow, present flow. But it's still, you know, this, the same phenomenon happens in science and sports sure. and whatever it is. You know? Yeah, math, everything. Yeah. Absolutely. It's crazy. So this was cool. I mean, so much of this book really resonates with me. And I think it's just because a lot of it is answers the, you know, the questions I had growing up and the, the questions that I have now and everything about uh, learning and about why it was so challenging for me and why I've been able to adapt in other areas and be successful in some areas and not as successful in other areas. So it's, you know, the perfect book for me to like justify where, where I've come from, where, <laughs> where I'm at now. Um, and you talk about, um, let me tell me if you remember this. I don't know if you remember this part in the book, but you say, uh, the question is what lies at the heart of the highest creative achievers? And you give three, uh, keys as the answer and they all work with me. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I do. So I don't know if you remember these three keys, but I can read them off if you don't. Yeah, please read them. <laughs> okay. You said the, so you said there's, there's uh, three keys that lies at the heart of the highest creative achievers. So the most creative people in the world who have achieved the most, the three things they have is drive, persistence, and love. And I don't remember if you remember. Did I say that in the, in the book on Gifted? I'm pretty sure you did. I, can, I don't know the page number here, but uh, I have it here. Maybe it's, maybe it's not in the book and I got it somewhere else from you. But cool. yeah, three things well, of the highest creative achievers is drive, persistence, and love. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the uh, it's definitely the triumphant trio. <laughs> triumphant trio, I like that. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I, well, you, you look over and over again, and you even look at, um, there's the famous studies by uh, Bloom in 1985, who published this book on prodigies, and um, these kids that by before the age of 12, like, why were they, like, at professional level? How did that happen? And he, sh he found that lots of things that looked like talent, um, were things that these kids spent um, even the first 10 years of their life, um, you know, intensely driven, um, persistent, um, and um, passionate about uh, about those things. And, the, and parents and teachers just kept throwing more and more resources at them because they showed these things at an early age. But the thing I want to emphasize in this book is that this is a process that can be set off at any time in your life. I've written stuff about late bloomers. And just because it's not, I don't see life as a zero sum game. Just because you may not have displayed those um, those skills or those passions when you're really, really young, um, and and gone up that curve, doesn't mean that when you're at any age, there's no limit that you can get find something that, ins that inspires you and sets off that learning curve. And that's mm. something that I really wanted to emphasize in my book. I like it. I like yeah. it. Well. Scott, I could talk about this for a long time, and I want to I want to actually bring you back on at some point and really dive into the topic of flow, if that's what you've been studying for a while as well, because I'm fascinated oh. with this. I'm actually doing a workshop in Los Angeles next month, a free workshop called Step Into the Flow, oh, where, nice. where I have been, uh, I've been, you know, I, th I believe I've been diving into flow a lot in my life in the sports world and in the business world and when I'm speaking on stage, but I've never been able to capture how to 
translate it into exercises that people can take on for themselves to step into at any moment in their life, whether it's going into a job interview or giving a presentation or doing a sales pitch or anything. So mm-hmm. I'm working on developing these exercises that people can apply at any time to step into the flow wow. for themselves. And so I'm experimenting with it. That's why I'm doing a free workshop just to kind of experiment. So awesome. I'd love to I'd love to talk to you more because I would love to learn more from your you know wow. research and tap into your incredibly creative mind. Well, thanks, um, but it sounds like I have a lot I could learn from you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to you know couple with your research of what you're what you're learning, yeah. and figure out ways to create exercises for people to do it, not analyze it and think it, but actually, okay, now what can I do from what we've learned in your research? I think it'd be really powerful. Thanks. That's really important stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So before I ask you the final question, um, make sure everyone go to scottberrykaufman.com. I'll have it all linked up on the show notes. I'll tell you what the link is here in the outro in just a second. The book is called Ungifted Intelligence Redefined, The Truth About Talent, practice, creativity, and the many paths to greatness, not just one path, but the many paths to greatness. You've also got a, a, a couple of other books, right, Scott? And That's uh, right. you, you write for Psychology Today and a, a few different other magazines. Actually, I write, I moved recently over to Scientific American. Okay. My blog is called Beautiful Minds, at Scientific American. Nice, Beautiful Minds. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, you've written for Psychology Today and a number of other places, right? That's right, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and you're still a professor at uh, New York, is that right? No, so actually, um, I, I started this new job at the you know, University of Pennsylvania. Okay, cool. Now, and uh, I'm a scientific director of the Imagination Institute. Perfect. I love yeah. it. I love it. And uh, yeah, learn more about Scott over at scottberrycoffman.com. I appreciate it. And the final question is, what is your definition of greatness? Oh, no. <laughs> what a great one. It's a great question. But, <laughs> it's what um, I ask all my guests at the end of the show. So this is perfect for you since your book is on this. Sure. You know, I think so. At a very like statistical level, greatness is being able to to do to have some sort of accomplishment, do something that is at the very very highest end of that bell curve, like top one percent of doing something. Um, and I, it could be anything. It could be like, um, but you know, it could be any sort of mastery skill set. But um, I think there is a difference between expertise and greatness. So I don't think it's just that. So that's one thing is being a being able to do have a skill set. That puts you very high on that, that curve. But I also would define greatness as the second component ability to actually not just the ability to have that skill set, but to do something that moves that field in a direction that no one has ever seen before. Mm, I love it. Scott Barry Kaufman, thanks so much, man, for coming on. I appreciate you and the the research you're doing, the studies you're doing to forward education and the growth of humanity really so thank you so much for everything and uh, i can't wait to have you back on sometime soon about your next book and talking about flow thanks lewis i really appreciate being on the show There you have it, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to go check out all the show notes over at lewishouse.com slash 87 to learn more about Scott, to learn more about his books on greatness, and to get links to his social media, to his website, and all the other cool stuff that he's got going on. Make sure to check it out. Share this with your friends over on Twitter and Facebook, Google+, and post a picture on Instagram where you are listening to the show. Just tag at lewishouse or hashtag school of greatness. And you guys know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do 
something great. At Metro, get an iPhone 12 with 5G and a dual camera system for $99.99. Take amazing pictures and share them instantly. And don't put up with life's yada yada. Yada yada. Like photo bombers. Zoom, crop out, yada yada. And bye. You don't take yada yada in life. Don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Get iPhone 12 with 5G with no activation fees and nada yada yada. Only at Metro by T-Mobile. Switch to Metro, bring your ID. This offer isn't available for customers currently at T-Mobile or that have been with Metro in the past 180 days.